welcome back to your safe space, the beauty in being real. Welcome back to the Beauty in Being Real podcast. I hope you've all had a lovely week and I hope you have all got a restful but enjoyable weekend. In today's episode, I spoke to my really, really close friend, AJ Pardo. We met about two years ago during the first lockdown and we have been essentially best friends ever since. We call every day, we speak every day, like there's not a day where we don't have some contact. So yeah, he's one of the closest people in my life and I absolutely adore him to bits. In this episode, we speak about the psychology and how the brain works regarding mental health. I found this really interesting and AJ studied this in his A-level and I thought who would be better to speak to than someone who I get on with like a house on fire and someone who knows a lot on the subject. This is a very sciencey episode and I don't understand all of the words, but AJ does explain them throughout, which did help me a lot. I feel like the science sort of aspect of it isn't really spoken a lot. So in this episode, we delved into what causes mental illness, how we can treat it, how medication works, symptoms, stuff like that. And yeah, I really hope you enjoy this episode. If you do enjoy it, be sure to like, follow, subscribe, leave a comment. I don't really know. I don't really know what to say when it comes to that. I haven't actually figured it out yet. But yeah, if you do enjoy it, drop me a message on Instagram, the beauty of being real pod, or the beauty of being real, or alicia.a.k. And if you want to email us with any questions or anything like that, it's all in the description. So yeah, without further ado, let's get into this episode. Gone a lot by then. What's the date currently? 
it is the 8th of October. It's the 8th of October, Saturday the 8th, and on Monday is Wednesday Health Day, whilst we are recording this. So yeah, that's a little bit of content. Context, Stephen. So what got you into psychology? Uh, initially, I picked it up at GCSE because obviously you have to take your options then, and psychology was one of mine. But when you get into it, you learn it's less about knowing what's, well, it is still partially know what's going what, uh, I can't talk today. Neither can I. What is going on in people's heads. <laughs> but a lot of it is relating to their behaviours, why they do these behaviours, and everything revolving around that, and I just found it really interesting, and then I just carried it on in Taylor level. That's really interesting because we didn't get an option to do psychology until we were in sixth form. Like, you couldn't take it as a GCSE. Mm. Uh, well, because I think it was one of the newest ones when I was in year nine, but obviously because my school went through shit, uh, they dropped it in GCSE and they were going to drop it in A-level, but a load of people were like, no. <laughs> How dare you? I remember at least I wanted to do media A-level as well, but I'd be the only person on the course and I was like, do it. And they were like, no, I'm like, that's fine. I, I remember sending the teacher an email saying, look, right, can you let me in, please? Like, I, like, yeah. And then, like, three of them in the year below me got to do it because there was three of them, and I was like, oh, sod you all. Okay, what got you into psychology? Okay, uh, initially... <laughs> I feel bad now. Uh, initially, um, I got into it because I thought it would have been about what's going on in people's heads, which it partially is, but it's about also why people do certain behaviours, like psychopathy, that's the big one that we had to study in A-level. Um, also mental health issues, things like illusions as well is something that we study. Really? Like optical illusions? Uh, not just optical illusions, but um, also mental illusions. I can't remember off the top of my head, but um, it was due to your perception, so it would essentially have been why your brain perceives, I don't know, an image as being two things. Like, you know Ruben's vase? You could see either the two faces or the vase. Oh, yes, yes. I thought you meant Ruben is in Ruben we know. I was like, no, he's never told me about a vase. I mean, maybe he has, we don't know. I mean, we've been through a lot together, us lot. What is your fave takeaway? Obviously Chinese, it has to be Chinese. I had one yesterday and then I literally, before we went on the call, I had some like leftovers, like heat stuff, it was very nice. Uh, I need to get more takeaway, I'm, I'm craving now. You're why do you do this to me? What? Yeah. No. Well, every time you come round, we're just like, should we get takeaway? And we're like, we shouldn't, but we should. <laughs> we're like, money, no, we don't have a lot of it. Takeaway? Absolutely. Gin, also, yeah. Absolutely. How does mental health affect the brain, uh, especially anxiety and depression? Okay, so um, with specific mental health disorders, they will always affect different parts of your brain. Um, with anxiety, it will localise a lot in your emotional cortex, um, especially in your amygdala, but also in your hippocampus and your hypothalamus, I think. Um, uh, but especially in your amygdala, because that's where your fight or flight response mostly is. I'll probably get into that later. I know about that. Is it because you've seen other crime drama? No, it's because I went to therapy. And your therapist said you're fucked. 
no, that, that, that did actually happen. That genuinely happened. And depression, isn't that like a symptom of, is it bipolar disorder or multiple personality disorder? I think it's bipolar. Yeah, but um, I'm kind of, I can't... But, um, yeah, so someone with like bipolar, for instance, will have different areas of their brain affected to someone who might have just um, low depression or maybe seasonal affective disorder, which is technically another form of depression as well. I knew there was different types of anxiety, but I didn't actually realise there was different types of depression. So that's actually really interesting. Yeah, so you've got, um, I can't remember the specific term for it, but I'm just calling it low depression because it's... It's easy to understand. Yeah. Um, yeah, so you've got low depression, you've got manic depression. Um, technically, you've got SAD, seasonal affective disorder, which is essentially your um, mood levels being affected by seasons. Yeah. Uh, there is a theory around that that um, it's due to the amount of sun that someone gets. Someone gets? Someone gets. Yeah. Um, because sun... Like exposure to sun releases a hormone called melatonin. Oh, I got it on that sleep. That's one of my sleeping yeah. tablets. So, um, that is also part of the cycle as well. So, the more melatonin you have, um, that means the more sun you've been exposed to. And then as that goes down and down and down, that is when your brain's like, okay, sleepy time. Oh my god. So I don't I don't get enough melatonin from the sun because I burn so much that so I don't go in the sun. Uh, it well you can have like you can start to feel really sleepy from too much. It's a really weird process when I was studying it because um we mostly looked at it with um sleep cycles. Okay. So I don't know a huge amount about how melatonin works, but um I do know that they do do things like um phototherapy where they will literally just stick you in a sunbed for things like SAD to try and raise your melatonin levels. Okay. That's actually really interesting because there's so many different health conspiracies around sunbeds that the way they do that, that's really interesting. Hmm. Yeah, uh, obviously don't take my word verbatim. I'm not a huge expert on melatonin, so I'm not 100% how it works. I've been on it since I was about... 12 or 13, and I'm still not an expert on it. <laughs> I still, I've got two different types. One of them's white and one of them's blue, and I still don't know which one's which. I mean, I do know, um, someone got put on, like, the max strength melatonin, because they would take the weak ones, and they would be like, this doesn't work on me at all. So they didn't think the strong ones were going to do anything. They passed out on call with me. Oh, my God. I, yeah, I got, it was like trial and error with my dosage. But I think we're getting there slowly, but now I'm 18 for cancers, you know. Bye-bye. Yeah, but with melatonin, it's very much like, if you don't have enough, you will start to feel sleepy, but if you have too much, your brain is also like, okay, sleepy time. It's very weird. It's like a balance. Yeah. It, well, it's a lot, it's the same for a lot of disorders, and we'll probably get into that later on. Yeah, I want this to be like a huge discussion. <laughs> the next question leads in quite nicely to what we were talking about. It's, how does medication, for example, sertraline, which can be used for mainly depression but other mental health illnesses, affect the brain? Um, medication for um, specific 
disorders are geared towards treating symptoms instead of actually treating the disorder because currently we don't have an extreme amount of understanding with things like mental health disorders. So um, if you look at someone who has uh, extreme depression, for example, um, they found that they will have low levels of something called serotonin. Everyone's probably heard of it, but they probably don't know a lot about what it is. I, um, I might be of some use for this question, so I'm going to let you finish and I might be able to give some points. Um, serotonin is something called a neurotransmitter. So with your, um, nerve cells and neurons and things like that, um, in your brain you have so many neurons, I can't remember the specific number, but if I remember rightly it's in the millions. Oh, and, um, I thought it was 136. No? Okay, no, no. no. Something in the, in the body is 136, and I just don't know what. Neurons, it might be 150,000 or closer to the million. Because I know, um, like, children have a lot more neurons than adults do. Because in adults, you start to cut down in the parts of the brain that you don't need. It's a very weird process. It's called synaptic pruning. Jesus. Yeah, your brain's a garden. How do you feel? Concerned. But, um, with neurotransmitters, that is what serotonin is. So when neurons are communicating between each other, there's this little gap called a synapse. I know about and that. Okay, tell me what you know, and then I'll fill in the blank. No, I I've just heard the word before in science. I, I okay. Is that the thing between the muscles? Um, they are in muscle cells, but they're a bit different. Okay, never mind. Carry on. But, um, yeah, so in that synapse, that is where the neurotransmitter is released. So if an electrical signal is going along one neuron, it will reach that synapse, and then serotonin comes out of that neuron and starts to go across towards the next one where it will bind to the receptors. And then if enough binds to those receptors, the electrical signal will be triggered in that one, and it will carry along the next neuron and so forth. But um, what happens in the brain with those when it comes to mental health disorders is that there's either too much or too little of a neurotransmitter being released into the synapse. So if you had too much serotonin, for example, in something like anxiety, a si uh, when you start to feel anxious, a signal will go across your neuron and then when it reaches that synapse, if there's too much serotonin, the next one will not shut off. Because there's a very delicate balance about how much is going in between it. Because if it's too much, the signal will constantly be firing and it won't shut off until it's all been used. But if there's too little, then it won't trigger and the signal will just die. Oh. That was probably a lot of information, I'm sorry. No, that's perfect. I'm just writing down a few points I wanted to discuss later on okay. that I've just thought of. Okay, what is the main causes of mental illness? I know there is tons and tons for each and every. This could link in to the extra points that I had, so if you want to go for it, and then I can throw in the extra points. Okay, so um, 
Do you know anything about something called a diathesis stress model? No. Okay, so what a diathesis stress model is, it's, um, think of it as like a line that if we can cross, if we develop a disorder. So, um, take depression, for example. Yeah. That line would be set by your genetics. So your genes would give you a vulnerability towards depression, but it wouldn't give you depression, if that makes sense. Yeah. So um, the your biological factors will give you that line, and if you are pushed over that line, you develop the disorder. But what pushes you over that line are environmental stresses and factors, things like potentially an abusive home life, for example, that could push you over the edge quite severely. Um, things like no support. Um, even little things that are like discounted can always contribute towards pushing you over that edge. Yeah. And then when you go over that edge, that is when you start to develop the symptoms and your brain starts struggling with things like neurotransmitters. What about if it's not genetic? What about if no one in your family suffers with mental health? Well, <clears throat> that's why it's the diathesis stress model. So, um. It's not saying that, like, you have to have a vulnerability towards a certain thing. It's just saying that some people are more likely to develop it than others. Like, you can have a vulnerability to it and not develop it quite easily if you have, like, a good home life, supportive friends and things like that. It's just the environmental things around you that push you towards that edge. So, um... I know, take me for example, I might not have any genetic vulnerability towards depression, but I could still develop it because of my environment around me. Okay. Is it possible to be born with, like, a mental illness? Like, is it possible to have the, like you said, with depression, is it possible to be born without the correct amount of serotonin? Um... Potentially, so with uh, serotonin, all neurotransmitters are coded for by your genes. And some, I'm not an expert on this, this is more like biological yeah, yeah, neuroscience. But um, I imagine it is possible for someone to be born with an incorrect amount of neurotransmitters or their genes aren't triggering the correct one, potentially. But I don't think that that is, like, that can't just cause you to have depression as soon as you are born, I don't think. As far as I'm aware, there are no cases where someone has been born depressed. Oh. Okay, that's really interesting. Because looking back from when I was younger, I showed signs of anxiety from when I was about three. That's really interesting. Mm. I don't remember what happened, but not a lot happens when you're, like, that young. So that's actually really interesting. Well, you can, like, there are records of people developing it extremely early, but no one has shown signs as soon as they've been born because you can't test it in something like a newborn. Yeah. Because you can't register how a newborn's feeling because all tests for things like this are almost always subjective. That's what I form. Okay, yeah, and of course the baby can't be like... They just cry anyway, that's just babies. Mm. Okay. 
spoken about this briefly, but what parts of the brain cause anxiety? Like, how does it develop? So this is where we're going to get into the fight or fire. Yes! I know so, this. Um, as I mentioned before, it's centralised in your emotional cortex, like your amygdala, your hippocampus, and your hypothalamus. Um, <laughs> your face is just like, what? <laughs> That's just so many big words. The why. Why did we, why as humans did we decide that? I don't know. In science, they're always just like, oh yeah. And then you take the half a of cuckoo glue, and then something happens. It's just like, right. Take the circle. It, it would make life so much easier. Literally, like some of the different elements, like you have stuff like helium. Okay, fair enough. And then you have like sodium chloride mixed with sulfate, and you're like, what? Why? And then you have to try and balance the equation. You're like, why? It doesn't help. That obviously, I didn't take it. Thank God. But um, in chemistry at A level, everyone I know who's taken it, and then the teacher students are just like. Forget everything you learn at GCSE at wrong. It's like, what did you teach us about? <laughs> Literally. I, all, I hate physics so much. Especially that, like, is it Newton or something like that? The guy who was like, if I put a ball on a hill and kick it off, it will go towards the floor. What? Yeah. I don't care. And then I had a question that was like, if, I drive, if I'm driving a car at 70 miles an hour and I go off of a cliff, what velocity am I falling at? I don't fucking know. Don't drive off a cliff, you silly bitch. <laughs> it's also like when you're, you get like the stupidest questions, you're like, right, uh, I am driving towards the beach. I am going at this speed for this amount of time. How big is the sun? Literally, it's like, I, I don't know. I, I was actually, I only got like a fourth, a three, four in science mock because of physics, because half of the 4-4 and then Covid happened and I came out with a 6-6 six, six. I was like brilliant amazing I didn't have to do physics again in my life well because I did triple I actually got an uh, individual grade 3 science oh nice I know for a fact if I got one for physics it would just say a big fat zero because I did not like it <laughs> it just it did my absolute head in okay uh, I think I got a 5 in physics, a 6 in chemistry, and an 8 in biology. That's just my favourite. Oh. I, um, I remember in biology we were supposed to, like, there was two options for a practical we could do. It was either dissect something, or we could go outside and count some daisies in the field. Can you guess which one we picked? Daisies? Yeah, so we got this triangle, and we had to calculate how big the field was and calculate how many daisies were in that triangle, and then work out that how that meant how many daisies were in the field but then we had to take into factor that there was shade some places didn't get as much water i don't understand what the point of it was but i'd rather do that any day it was biodiversity i think that was it yes yes i i remember in like year year five we were doing dissecting stuff but it made us do it on a tomato and even that freaked me out like sexing a tomato. Yeah, well, they weren't going to get... Oh, I remember in year six then we had to watch a video of like a, like a human heart beating and I passed out. <laughs> and then in year seven there was a pair of pig lungs so they got, they got a balloon and just started blowing up. I was like, one? 
Where the fuck did you get this? Two, why am I watching this? Three, can I leave, please? Yeah, I don't need to see this. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. Sorry. Right. Back to how does anxiety <laughs> develop? Slight of fright. We, 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 no. We went from anxiety to pig lung. No, I know. It, it's amazing how we can go off on one, especially me. I mean, we both do it. We're both as bad as each other. That's yeah. What so, um, yeah, fight or flight. Um, as I said, it's a, the fight or flight especially is centralised in your amygdala. Yes. What about... What's the, the, fuck. What about... Freeze. Yes. Flight, flight, freeze. Flight, fight, freeze. Um, freeze was kind of added on as another one. Um, also, for those of those because obviously they couldn't see this. Leash had her hand up as well, but yeah. Every time someone says fight, flight, or freeze, I'd go, freeze! Everybody clap your hands! Not the cha-cha slide, it's too powerful. <laughs> I had to do the ab workout of that in Bodycon once, and I was just crying. But, um, yeah, for freeze, it was added on later on, because, um, this is a bad example, but you know things in like Jurassic Park, for example, where they stand still and hope the T-Rex can't see them? Oh, yeah. I thought you were going to tell me something about dinosaurs. I was like, please don't. It's kind of that premise where if you stand still, they won't see you, but it's a very primal part of your brain, so it's not referenced to as much. But, it's um, it's kind of like when you, you're in like a horror game, that it's like if you freeze, the animatronic won't come kill you. I love how your go-to is always for that. It's the only thing that I have a lot of experience on. What was I going to say? Oh, <laughs> yes. No, come back. Please come back, Thor. Is it like that thing, like, when little kids play hide-and-seek, they're like, if they just cover their eyes, and it's like, if you can't see, if I can't see you, you can't see me. It's kind of similar to, if I don't move, they can't see me. Pretty much, yeah. Brilliant. Love that. Okay, fight or flight? But, um, specifically with flight and flight, yeah, flight and flight, I can talk. No, I can't do it either. Um, yeah, so specifically with flight and flight, um, that's thought to be the main premise for what causes anxiety disorder. So, um, your fight or flight response is essentially your response to a stressor and is your panic response. So everyone's heard of like the central nervous system from things like hospital dramas and all that. But um, the central nervous system has division. So the first division is split between the autonomic and somatic nervous system. Wait, no, sorry, central, uh, fuck. Okay, so hang on. No, it's the nervous system at the top. I'm trying to remember it as a diagram. Then that splits into the central and It's more about neurotransmitters in your brain. So, with um, 
depression. It's mostly related to serotonin. But there have also been um, theories about the neurotransmitter dopamine as well, otherwise known as the happy one. Oh my god, um, yes, dopamine. Yes. So there have been theories revolving around that, but it also has been related to things like schizophrenia. That's a very highly related one to dopamine. But also, um, it is apparently responsible for Parkinson's as well. Oh, but Parkinson's isn't a mental illness, is it? Well, it's kind of mental because you're losing your memory. But does it count as more illness or men- like physical body illness or mental illness? Or is it a bit both? It's... Well, there isn't a specific known like treatment for it, but um, one thing they do do to delay Parkinson's a lot is they'll put a dopamine injector in your brain, specifically where it's lacking in it. So it is mostly a physical debilitation, but it does affect you mentally. I just thought I'd mention it anyway, because why not? So dopamine can also help your memory? Um... Sort of. Schizophrenia. No, sorry, Parkinson's. Isn't that when you lose your memory? Um, I think you're thinking of Alzheimer's, love. Oh, I am. But I could have sworn Parkinson's had like something to do with memory loss as well. But is that more? No, I thought it was. I thought it was uh, if I remember rightly, Parkinson's is more movement. So let me double check that. You could. I think you are actually right. Yeah, involuntary shaking, slow movements, and stiff flexibility. That's it. So, um, Parkinson's is more like when you start to lose control over your body. So, um, have you heard of things like MS? S and M. MS, not S and M. I just heard the letters MS, and it, my brain went S and M. No, I have not. Uh, we're getting more into science aspect. I can explain it to you if you want, but if not... No, absolutely, go for it, because I reckon, like, people would find this interesting, even if they don't understand it that much, like me. I am still learning, and I am still enjoying it. Okay, so Parkinson's is localised a lot more in the top back left of your brain. If I remember rightly, that's your parietal lobe. Um, or it might be your temporal, either one. I can't remember which one off the top of my head. I think yeah, it's very it's a part of the brain. Yeah. So, it's related a lot to dopamine or lack of dopamine in that area. And that causes things like slow movement. Because, um, that part of the brain also houses your motor cortex. So, um, that's mostly believed around Parkinson's. Or MS, it has similar symptoms, but it's different in what causes it. So, um, with your nerve cells, there's this thing called a myelin sheath wrapped around it. So, the way your nerve cells work is they have an electrical impulse and it travels all the way up. But in order to make the, say the, um, what's the word? Communication, there we go. Yeah. Quicker. Instead of having it transmit all the way along the neuron, it will have it bounce between specific points. Okay. And those points are caused by the myelin sheath because what it is, is it's basically an electrical insulator. That means the electricity can't get through. So okay. it will just bounce between the little points called the nodes of Ramsey A, but that's not important. <sighs> I have to do this too much. 
Oh, bless you. But yeah, so um, with Emma, what happens there is that myelin sheath starts to deteriorate. Yeah. And your nerves start to get slower. So if you're moving your arm up and down, that happens in the fraction of a millisecond. Emma slows your responses down. So what you normally wouldn't think about becomes slower and slower and slower until eventually your body can't cope with it anymore. So with people who with, don't um, have the 
illness? Is it more a case of they check the doors locked, they realise they've done it and they can relax, whereas with OCD you can't? Sort of, yeah. Okay. So, um, like I said, people will do the impulse and then their brain will be like, you've done it, you're good, go chill out. But um, with people with OCD, uh, they'll either have um, a hyperactive orbitofrontal cortex or an underactive um, basal ganglia. So if your orbitofrontal cortex is hyperactive, then it's constantly giving you that impulse. So you'll be like, right, have to check door, wait, check door again, wait, check door again. And it's constantly doing that until it gets enough of the signal from the basal ganglia to tell you to come fuck down. Yeah. But um, if it's the other end of the spectrum and your basal ganglia is under-reactive, then um, you'll get an impulse like normal. You'll do that impulse, but it doesn't register that you've done that impulse there, so then you'll have to do it more and more in order to satisfy that part of your brain. And then it's like, right, now you've done it after doing it like 30 times, for example, and then it sends the signal to calm down. I did want to revisit slightly, if that's alright. Absolutely, go for it. Uh, see, um, hang on, wait. Were you going to ask about meds at any point? We can, oh, that's really good actually, because I can add causes and meds to the list of the illnesses we're about to talk about. Well, if you had like a question about medication, I'll save this bit of info for that. I have like written down like anxiety, depression, multiple personalities different types of depression, ADHD, the causes and medications, so maybe just say your point now, and then if we cover it now, we won't have to do it later on, because I can just be like, oh, we covered that like, earlier on in the episode. What's my hand? Yeah, so, the medication for OCD, it's geared towards potentially blocking one part of that part of your brain, so if they knew, for example, that you had a hyperactive orbitofrontal cortex, they would, um, send, give you um, a medication that would send, I don't know what specific neurotransmitter it is, but send it to your brain and then your orbitofrontal cortex would be blocked to an extent, so it wouldn't constantly be sending that impulse and then it would calm down after it, it's gotten the signal back. Yeah. Um, but um, obviously with the basal ganglia, it's geared towards more increasing the effectiveness of it, so they'll give you a medication that will maybe puff it up a bit. No, no, I get you. How can you test for which one is the issue? Is there a way to test that? Um, I don't know specifically, but if I had to have it a guess, it would be an fMRI. So, oh, like the brain scan? Yeah, so there are two different types. There's fMRI and there's MRI. So what an MRI is, is it's a brain scan that measures blood flow to certain parts of your brain. Yeah. But they have a few issues with it because the image that you get is actually five minutes delayed. Ah. So if you do something, then they have to wait five minutes before the image of your brain doing that thing is actually presented. So um, there's that kind. And with fMRI, it's a bit different, but it still has the delay. So what they do there is um, it's called functional magnetic resonance imaging. 
So they'll give you a task to do something, and in this case it might be to check what impulses you have. Yeah. And then when you start performing one of those impulses, they would get the image later on, and they'd obviously time check it and everything. But um, then they would put that against what they know of the condition, and then potentially try and find out what part of your brain is causing that and work around that. So, you know you said earlier on that, like, if I lift my arm, that's sort of an impulse. Like, I had the impulse. No, sorry. So let's say I touch something hot, and my, my impulse is kicking, I'd go, up oh, and take my hand off. Would that... That's not an impulse, that's a reaction. Okay, forget it's, everything it's I It's a reflex arc. Forget everything I did. So, maybe try using, like, the door one, sorry. So, let's say... So if I, if there was something in my brain, people would see what was happening in my brain. If I was to check the door 28 times, that wouldn't register till five minutes after I've done it. Um, it would be registered by the machine, but the machine puts your brain into an image and it it takes five minutes to create that image of what you're Oh, I thought you meant, I was like, surely the brain can't be five minutes behind the rest of your body. No, it's not, don't worry. I genuinely thought you meant, like, if I lift my arm, my brain's going to take five minutes to process that I lifted my arm. <laughs> your brain's for the reason you did lift your arm. That's why I was so confused. I was like, I swear, like, the brain causes, it's like lifting my arm. Like, I was like, what? No, so it's the image that's delayed, not your brain. Right, okay. That's going to make me sound so stupid, but I was so confused. I was like, hold on a minute, so you're telling me when I lift my arm, my brain's five minutes slower. I was like, so how come I don't just randomly, if my brain only just registered that I lift my arm, how, how, can, I, how can I lift it? <laughs> oh, Jesus. Um, so that's how they test brains. We've spoken about medication and causes. Is, it, is there anything else? I'm not. One thing I did want to say that I'm not 100% sure if that is how they test for it. It was just an educated guess. No, honestly, like, it's all good. In my introduction to this episode, I'll say some of it might not be as accurate as reading as being okay. a professional doctor, but we did well. Anything, yeah. Anything else you want to add on OCD? Uh, nope. Okay. Tick. We've spoken about... Can we delve into the different types of anxiety and the different types of depression? Um, yeah. Do you want? I might be able to assist on the anxiety side of it. So, I've... If, I've yeah, I'm not as extremely knowledgeable about the anxiety side of it, but I can still try. Okay, so I believe there's seven types. But I'm not entirely sure. I know there's rheumative separation, social panic disorder. They sometimes classify OCD as one. But I'm not sure. Hold on, let me ask Alexa. Alexa, how many different types of anxiety are there? From fandom.com, there are currently 10 types of eggs. Basic egg, wooden what? egg, egg, stone egg, bronze egg, Why are we on about egg, egg, silver egg, what? gold egg, diamond egg, emerald egg, and ruby egg. Okay, shut. <laughs> Why would I said different types of anxiety? And she's gone. Hmm. Eggs. <laughs> what? Let me try again. 
Alexa, how many different types of anxiety are there? Bird eggs are a common food and one of the most versatile ingredients used for cooking. They are important in most varieties of
But um, negative reinforcement is when something is taken away to increase the likelihood of behavior. And an um, uh, example of this is uh, Skinner's box. So um, this guy called Skinner, he had, a, it was a bunch of animals, but the most common one was a rat. And then he would, yeah. yeah. So the negative reinforcement was he would start shocking the rat until the rat pressed a lever, and then the lever would cause the elect, like the shock to stop. So he conditioned the rat to press the lever to stop the shock by taking the shock away when it did it. I'm sorry, but that's fucking horrible. I mean, there's a worse one about um, classical conditioning, which is the dog one. Wait, is it? It might be more important. But, um, yeah, so there was this kid called Little Albert, and he was basically given a phobia via an experiment of anything fluffy and white. How? So, um, they had a fluffy white rat that they put on his lap. Initially, no reaction. And then this really loud sound would play and it would terrify him and he would obviously start to cry because he was very, very young. But um, they carried on doing this until he learned to associate the white fluffy rat with the terrifying sound. So then whenever anything fluffy or white got near him, including like, um, you know, like fake Santa bears. Yeah. Anything like that, they would terrify him. And apparently, even to his death, he was terrified of them. I don't like humanity. <laughs> I really don't. It's like when they send animals to space. That annoys me. Like, mm. if it's if it's a human job, test it on a human. Same with makeup. If it's a product for humans, test it on a human. You don't see a cow walking around with full face makeup, do you? So don't test it on him. Yeah, I do need to emphasise though. Um, this was before the British Psychological Guidelines came in. So obviously that experiment wouldn't be allowed now. But there were there weren't a lot of regulations for what they could have done then. It was like in the nineteen twenties, I think. Oh, okay. I So yes. I, I the only like scientific problem that I can remember is it was something like there was a cat or a rat, one or two was put in a box and this gas was put into the box and it could have survived it or it could have died. It was like would you take the chance of looking in the box or it was something like that. I don't think that's conditioning. It might have been conditioning if it was like, if it pressed the lever, the gas would be sucked out or something. Oh, no, no, but, no. Yeah. I know it's nothing to do with what we're on about. It's just the only thing I can remember. Fair enough. Um, I can't say I know that one. Sorry. I'm, I'm going to find it because I'm really intrigued. Is that okay? We're going completely off topic. Yeah, go for it. But I'm finding this really, really interesting. Okay. Um, okay. Experiment with cat in box. Yes! Found it! Yes, 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 yes. Okay, hold on. Let me get the... This is it, this is it. Okay, it's Schrodinger's cat. Oh, Schrodinger's cat. Yeah. Of quantum superstition. A hypothetical... No, a hypothetical cat can be considered both alive and dead as it... Oh, is this when, like, it was put in the box, the gas was released, it could have killed it or it could have not killed it, 
and for then the cat could be considered both dead and alive because people didn't know if it was dead or alive. It might have been. So wait, you watched Rick and Morty, right? Obviously. You know that episode where the weird testicle monster is like you fuck with time and then they start having like a bunch of uncertainty? Yeah. Uncertainties and then reality carries on splitting and splitting and then all of a sudden there's a bunch of fucking cats. Yeah. That's Schrodinger's cat. Oh, okay. Fair enough. Got it. Okay, well, I don't understand it. Anyway, let me hold on. A system starts being a super. Actually, no, that's too many big words. We're going to leave that be. <laughs> we went on, so retracking, we went different types of anxiety to eggs to this. Yeah, um, we, were, we started talking about phobias and that was how I got into conditioning. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's really interesting about phobias. I find it so sort of interesting. So with phobias, they can be either like innate, which is the biological aspect, like the epigenetic, yeah. or they can be learned, which is the conditioning. But what about, let's say, oh wait, no, that was a stupid question. Go on, ask it. And no, 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 because I, I figured the answer out for myself. Okay, fair enough. I was thinking, I've never been, let's say someone is deathly, has a deathly fear of being stabbed. But they've never been stabbed before. How would, how does that happen? But I write they've probably seen or heard about someone being stabbed. It's association, yeah. which is the um, yeah, yeah. operational conditioning. Yeah, I thought so. Okay, so there's social anxiety. Yeah. Uh, social anxiety is like what I meant about them kind of coming under phobias. Yes. Yeah. Then there's separation anxiety. Do you know anything about that? Like how it can form an attachment? I do actually, because this comes under attachment, which was another thing I studied in psychology. Fucking hell, you've studied everything. All right, lad, go for it. I can throw in my sort of, <laughs> my sort of input as well on this one, hopefully. So um, this is very subjective towards like young kids. That sounds dodgy, but you know what I mean. Um, oh, yeah, so, <laughs> with attachment, um, when babies are initially born, they won't have any reaction to the outside world, they're just like, feed me, change me, let me sleep, go away, and yeah. then, um, they start to, um, sort of attach, yeah, attach in a way to, um, something that is called the primary caregiver and that's the first as main attachment that they make it can be to the mum, the dad, a sibling, something like that it depends on yeah. a, a bunch of factors like um, who takes the most care of it I guess in a way so yeah. who changes it the most often, who gives it, I you know what I mean <laughs> <laughs> who takes care of it <laughs> I have a seven year old sister, I'm allowed yeah fair enough Have you? can I ask a point or give a point so when like children are first born most mothers literally as the baby comes out the womb then puts it on their chest so they have skin skin contact to create a like bond and a like what's it called attachment does that relate to anything at all or is that just a general thing it does in a way because um one 
I mean, I can start talking about a study here if you want. Oh, I remember absolutely, go for it. Vividly. Go for it. So, um, there was this study conducted by a man called Harlow, and he used uh, Reese's monkeys for them. Monkeys? So, yeah, he used monkeys for them. Okay, nice. So not nice. He had, yeah, he had eight monkeys in each condition, so there were two conditions. Um... One of them, there was a wire, like, they had to give it fake mothers because they didn't have the parents for monkeys. Okay. So there would be a wire mother As that would produce milk. A real monkey Sorry. mother? No, like, just a model of a monkey, basically. Yeah, okay, well, I thought so. It would be made of wire. Okay. That one would produce milk, and there would be the cloth mother as well, which was a lot more soft and touchable without hurting it. Um, and in the other condition, the cloth mother would also produce milk, so yeah. Um, so it was found that in the one where the wire mother produced milk, the monkey would still attach to the cloth mother because it was a lot more comfortable. So that showed that contact comfort was a lot more important in attachment than just giving it food. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, but I think there is also, like, a slight basis where, um, do you know about imprinting in ducks? Ducks? Yeah. As in the animal that goes quack quack? Yeah. I mean, I nearly had a pet duck once, so that's all I know about them. Okay, so with ducks, they attach to the first fast-moving object they see. Yeah. Even if that thing is just, like, I don't know, a yellow leather glass being chucked across the room, they will attach to that glove. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so... Why There fuck? was also... I don't know, because, um, I guess if it's a slow-moving object, it's sort of a protection mechanism against them doing something like that, but it doesn't account for things being chucked across the room. <laughs> so, um... Poor ducks! They're going to get attached to, like, with this day and age, like a plastic water bowl that's just been, like, flung from a car. I have seen a study where, um... You know, like, the toy cars you can drive around? Yes. He got a duck to attach to one of those. Why would he do that? I don't know. It's horrible. Oh, the poor duck. But, yeah, so because of that, it's called imprinting. So there was kind of a premise for a couple years that humans also imprint, but we don't. Okay. We just see something fast and moving. We're like, whoa. Mummy? Daddy? Brother? <laughs> Sing? Okay. I mean, there was a really cute one as well about a duck um, imprinting on a, like, a little puppy. Oh, it was so cute. That's really cute. Okay. So, that's social anxiety, separation anxiety. Rheumative anxiety. Oh, wait, I, did, I didn't cover that one yet. Sorry. What? I didn't finish with separation anxiety. Oh, sorry. sorry carry on. So, um, yeah, so, back to the primary caregiver thing. Sorry, we went on a bit of a tangent there. We got on to ducks. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of relevant. Though, no, it was, it was. So, yeah, um, with separation anxiety, initially babies will show separation anxiety when away from their primary caregiver. Yeah. And um, there's this theory called the law of accumulative separation. Yes. So, um... Every time you're separated from that primary caregiver, that carries on building up and building up and building up uh, instead of, like, 
going up and down in a way, if that makes sense. Yeah. So that can also lead to separation anxiety if that has built up too much. Oh. Well, that, that's like the, that's the psychological theory behind it. I'm sure there's a biological theory, but I don't know that one. Okay. Do you know about any tre- diagnosis or treatments? Um. Or like not off the top of my head. No, it might be things like um, counselling and therapies, just to help them process in their heads that maybe people leaving doesn't mean they're gone. Yeah. I, so the main thing that causes it is like the primary caregiver. Um, that, that's just the cause that I know of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. for this episode guys i really hope you enjoyed it and again thank you so much to aj for being a guest on this podcast i absolutely loved this interview what you guys don't know is me and aj spoke for about two and a half hours in october and we just didn't have time to edit it really short so i sent him the timestamps this week and we were like okay we're gonna do it so also a huge thank you to george for editing it all i know it was a really big task so thank you george i couldn't do this podcast without you and i love you and AJ, I love you so much. Thank you so much for doing this. I really hope you guys enjoyed this. If you have any questions about anything that we spoke about in this episode or any points you want to discuss, drop me either a message on Instagram or you can email us. They're all in the description of this episode and I can pass it on to AJ. Next week will be another solo episode. So I really hope I will see you guys there. And I hope you all have a beautiful week and thank you for joining in for another episode. by George Ray. Thank you so much for listening. If you have a moment to spare, please like, follow and review the podcast. Follow us on social media, which are linked in the podcast description. See you next Sunday for another episode of The Beauty in Being Real.